The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Stage here, and uh, they've got a production going on at the Colony Theater this weekend. And so we've got a smaller stage. I've got a smaller space to preach from, but they do a great job. And so one more time, could you just guys just give it up for our production team? They do such a great job. If we can get some more lights in the house, that'll be great. Hey, um, how many UCLA fans in the house? Anybody? UC- wow, congratulations. You got your first win yesterday. That's awesome. That's awesome. You're no longer losers and winless, and so we're excited for you. Can you imagine, by the way, what the locker room was like last night? I don't know if you've ever been on a team that consistently lost, but uh, it can get difficult, and uh, guys start fighting with each other in the locker room, and uh, sometimes guys hold grudges against other players. They're like, I think I'm better than that guy. I should be playing uh, above that guy. Sometimes players hold grudges against coaches, um, and they're like, I can't believe the coach can't see that I could play better than this guy. So I'm pumped for UCLA. Got their first win last night, and uh, I don't know what the locker room was like, but I hope it was uh, incredible and it was a great celebration. Um, A couple years ago, though, as I'm thinking about locker rooms, a couple years ago, I had the chance to engage with um, the head coach of a major league baseball team, and it was because his son and a couple of his friends were... um, using drugs and their teammates were using drugs and it got so bad it got to the point where the guys were literally stealing each other's bats in the locker room to buy drugs for it was insane it was insanity it was an insane locker room environment and you can imagine the conflict that's happening in that locker room it got to the point where eventually the coach kicked all the players out of the locker room because they couldn't get along it's amazing in Philippians chapter 2 here this morning uh, we have an inside look at some locker room conflict And uh, at this point in our series on uncommon joy, uh, in Philippians chapter 1, over the last three weeks, Paul has directed our attention to look to Jesus. And at Philippians chapter 2, in the fourth week of this series we're in, we're calling Uncommon Joy, we arrive at this point where Paul's going to expose some conflict that's happening, some locker room conflict among teammates. Specifically, there's conflict happening in the church at Philippi. And so Paul's going to help us walk through conflict together. He's going to say it's possible to experience joy in the midst of conflict. And so if you have a Bible this morning, Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to back up just a few verses to sort of set the stage for what's happening here in Philippians chapter 2 as Paul's going to talk about how it's possible to have joy in the midst of conflict. And so what we see in the last few verses of chapter 1 is Paul's going to talk about this conflict that's happening externally in the church. In other words, it's not internal conflict. It's happening outside of the church. Listen to what Paul says in verse 29. He says, For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. I think that's interesting, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here. But Paul says, suffering has been granted to you. Have you ever thought about that? You probably have never processed suffering being a gift that you look forward to at Christmas, have you? But Paul says suffering has been granted to believers. In other words, it's an incredibly and extraordinarily um, amazing gift that God gives us in salvation. But there's another gift that he gives us after we come to the point where we are following Christ, where he gives us another gift, and it's called suffering. And so Paul is going to say that that gift is a suffering. And sometimes we may think after we follow Christ and when we place our faith in Christ, we begin this journey as a Christian, like all of our problems, all of our conflict goes away. But Paul's going to say, in fact, what may actually happen 
is that your newfound faith may be the reason for new conflict in your life. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul's going to make the point that just because you have faith in Christ, you're a Christ follower. It doesn't mean conflict goes away. It doesn't mean struggle goes away. In fact, you may have additional struggle and additional conflict because of your faith. Now look at verse 30. Since you're going through the same conflict that you saw I had. And then he goes on to say, remember, he's talking to these people who are a part of a church in the city called Philippi. And he's saying, you're also walking through the same conflict that I had. Now you hear that I still have. This word that Paul uses here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 30 for conflict is the word that we get our English word from uh, called agony. Agony comes from that. Paul's saying, I've got this inward struggle in my life. I've got this internal conflict happening in my life because of this untiring work that I'm pursuing for Jesus. And so Paul says, I not only have that conflict happening, but I know you have the same conflict happening in your own life. Let me try to explain what Paul's meaning here when he's talking about the conflict that was happening. Um, If you remember the last few weeks, we talked about how in Acts chapter 16, Paul founded the church of Philippi. And if you remember some of the stories in the founding of the church at Philippi, you remember there was a slave girl, there was a fortune-telling girl that came to faith in Christ. She became a follower of Jesus. And when she became a follower of Jesus, she left the fortune-telling business. She left the money behind that she was making for her pimp. And when she did so, when she left the fortune-telling business, left that money behind, followed Paul, followed Jesus, what happened was her owner brought Paul and Silas, and they drug Paul and Silas to the town square. This is a story that we see in Acts chapter 16. They brought them to the town square. They brought them before the governing authorities, and they told the governing authorities, these people are disrupting our economy. And the governing authorities were so mad. They were so mad, the scripture says they literally tore their clothes and they picked up sticks and they began to beat Paul and Silas. And then they put Paul and Silas in prison. Now listen, that's conflict. That's literal agony. It's the same word if you know the story of Jesus the night that he was arrested. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying, and the scripture uses this description that he's in such agony. Same word we use here for conflict. He's in such agony, he's sweating drops of blood. He comes to the point, he arrives at the decision to say, God, if you can take this conflict from me, I'd be happy to allow you to take it from me. Of course, God would not take that conflict from Jesus, thankfully, on our behalf for salvation But what God did instead was he gave Jesus everything he needed to trust him in the conflict. Paul's arrived at this point in his life. He's come to this point in his life where he's experienced these external conflicts and he's sort of got this quiet confidence. And I want you to listen to the heartbeat of Paul as we read Philippians chapter 2 in just a moment. He's confident that God is in control in his circumstances. And so in the last part of Philippians 1, he's talking about this external conflict that's happening outside of the church that he's implying is happening because I'm a believer, because I'm a Christ follower. And then he's going to change the conversation from external conflict that oftentimes, by the way, is unavoidable. Because we are Christ followers, there is going to be conflict. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But then he gets to Philippians 2. 
And he's going to talk about internal conflict. And he's going to address this internal conflict that's going on uh, on the team we call the church at Philippi. He's going to address conflict inside the church that he says is avoidable. External conflict because of your faith, unavoidable. There is conflict that happens inside the church that actually is avoidable. And he's going to talk about how. Now, first, uh, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Let's see how Paul addresses this conflict and how he says we can have joy in the midst of it. Philippians 2 verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, Paul says, if there is any common sharing in the spirit, if there is any tenderness and compassion. Paul, Paul's got this concern for his friends at the church at Philippi. And so when Epaphroditus, this, this man who was a part of the church at Philippi, the church at Philippi sent Epaphroditus to Paul while he's in prison, and they literally bought him a financial gift. And so as Epaphroditus comes to Paul and delivers this gift, he also delivers news that there's fighting on the team, that there's conflict within the church. And so the conflict that we know is happening here, we can find that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, there's two women that at one time they, they traveled with Paul. They helped the gospel go forth with Paul. And so we don't know what the debate was about, but they, these two women in the church at Philippi are disagreeing about something. And so Paul's going to use this as the platform to talk about conflict and joy that's possible in conflict. And so he begins to address the conflict by reminding them, I want you to see this, about the blessings that we have in Jesus. I think it's important to start there. It's important always, by the way, to start with God. That's any time, by the way, how we structure our messages and our sermons. We start with God and we go from there. Paul's going to start with God. He's going to remind them, you have something incredibly good from God. Are you in conflict this morning? Listen to what Paul says. In light of the conflict, remember what you have from God. In fact, the word if there could be translated since, since you have encouragement in Christ, since you have comfort from his love, since you have teammates who are brought together by the Spirit, since you have affection and sympathy for one another, if you're experiencing conflict this morning, I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to us. Speaking to me. If we have conflict this morning, I want you to pause just for a moment. And I want you to think about what you have with Jesus. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 tells us this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, a legal term saying, once this happens, this is a watershed moment, a yes or no moment. Once we have faith in Jesus, we have been legally declared right with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Peace is possible. Right now, if you know Jesus, even if you're in conflict, peace with God is possible. Why? Because when we were in conflict with God... He made it possible for the conflict to be dissolved. How? When Jesus went to the cross, he canceled our sin. Listen to what else you have in Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We have peace with God. The other thing that Scripture will tell us is that God, God, is, God is with us. He is for us. Then look at Exodus chapter 14, 
Verse 19 and 20 says, this is the story, if you've been around church, of the Red Sea parting and the people of God walking through the dry sea. And this is sort of the description of God being with them. Exodus chapter 14, verse 19 says, Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, listen to what's happening here, listen to this word picture, withdrew and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind, coming between the armies of Egypt, the armies of Egypt and the armies of Israel. And throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so that neither went through and went near the other all night long. Listen, if you're in conflict this morning, Paul wants to remind you what you have in God. Start with God. You've got peace with God. God is for you. God is with you. Exodus chapter 14. Now, listen to what Paul is going to say. Begin with God. Remember what you have in God. Now, he's going to speak directly to the Philippian church. Verse 2 says this. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, by having the same mentality, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. So Paul's speaking to his friends in the church of Philippi, and he's asking them to be like-minded in order to complete his joy. What does that mean? As I'm studying the passage this week, I'm like, how can Paul's joy be made complete here? And as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about pastors and ministers and people who serve the body of Christ. Oftentimes, our well-being is tied to the unity of the church, the growth of the church. 3 John 4 says, I have no greater joy than this. To hear that my children are walking in truth. Paul is saying, I want to know. As a, as a spiritual father, I want to know my children are walking in truth. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1 reminds us that not only pastors experience joy when there's unity in the church. Listen, if you're a parent this morning, you experience joy when there's unity in your home. Proverbs 10:1 says, A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son, heartache to his mother. Sort of like a pastor, like a, like a minister, a parent's well-being oftentimes is, is tied to the maturity and the growth of our kids. So Paul is like the spiritual father to the church at Philippi. And he is saying, I want you to be unified. I, 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 can, I can understand what he means by this. As a dad of three kids in my home, I oftentimes look at my oldest son. And I'm like, Deacon, you're the oldest child in this home. If you bring chaos because your brother and your sister are looking at you, if you bring chaos, your brother and sister are looking at you, you're going to cause chaos in our entire home. You're my oldest child. Do not bring chaos into my home. Why? Because I want unity. Why? Because unity brings me joy. And so to be united... The church, now listen to me, I'm speaking of the church. I'm speaking of the bride of Christ. I'm speaking of followers of Christ that Paul is speaking to here, you and I. In order to be united, Paul is going to say there's three things that we got to have in common. And the first is this in verse 2. We've got to have the same mentality, the like-mindedness here. Now listen, when he says like-minded, I want you to understand something. Paul does not mean uniformity. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, there's a difference between uniform and uniformity. True spiritual unity. Unity is, is a matter of the heart. It comes from the things that Paul mentioned in verse 1. 
This is important. Last week builds on this week. True spiritual unity comes from the things that Paul mentioned in verse 1. Encouragement in Christ. Remember what you have. You have comfort from his love. You have teammates brought together by the Spirit. You have affection and sympathy. And these things cause you to work together towards unity and love. But uniformity, listen. But uniformity is a matter of external pressure. Unity is a matter of an internal matter of our hearts being aligned with God, listening to the same spirit of God. Uniformity is a matter of external pressure. It's things like we must all believe the same thing about the end times. I had a meeting this week with a friend in our church, and he and I disagree about how the end times are going to happen. You know what? We can still share a cone of ice cream at, um, where do we go? We went to... The ice cream place. I forget where it was. We can still share a cone of ice cream. Foster's Freeze. I was looking at him. Foster's Freeze. It wasn't in my notes. I forgot. Uniformity is a matter of external pressure. Things like we must all believe the same thing about the end times. Listen to this. We must all dress the same when we come to church. I joke with my friend John this morning as he came in. He's always got his shirt tucked in. And I told him, at least one time before you ever leave Story City Church and go back to Kansas City, I want you to come and just untuck your shirt. We're just joking with each other. Like uniformity says, this external, we've all got to be the same. We've got to believe the same about these external things. We've got to dress the same, uh, possibly like something like, well, we all don't go to R-rated movies. We've got to have, no, that's uniformity. Unity is different. Uniformity causes division and rivalry. Uniformity, listen, is a symptom of selfishness. And you know what selfishness is a symptom of? Selfishness is a symptom of pride. A church doesn't have to be uniform in the non-essentials and still have the ability to have unity. Why? Because of the Paul, because of the things that Paul mentioned in verse 1 here. They have those in common. In order to have unity, they should be like-minded. They should be listening to the same spirit. And oftentimes when we don't have unity, we're listening to different spirits. And so the second thing Paul says that's required for unity and conflict is found in verse 3. The first thing he says is the same mentality. The second thing he's going to say is Christ-like humility. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Paul uses a word here. He uses the Greek word. He uses the word conceit. It's translated vainglory. It's translated vain conceit in other versions of the Bible. And basically what it is, it's, it's an empty glory. Paul says you have an empty glory. You, have, you are looking for a glory that does not exist. It literally means to be in a state of pride without basis or justification. Listen, the deepest conflict we usually experience The deepest of deep conflicts that we usually experience are a result of some desire for glory in our lives. Glory comes from this word that means weight. It's as if we want to add weight to our lives. I don't mean pounds. I mean significance. Paul's saying when you try to add glory to your life, when you try to add weight to your life, when you try to add significance to your life, It's going to bring disunity. And all of us try to do that in some way. We try to complete and we try to compete with each other to lift ourselves above each other. In other words, 
So, so if I'm the smartest person, then, then I believe that makes me significant. That's why in an argument, I've got to have my voice heard. That's why I always want my opinion to be heard. Maybe for you, that's success. You want to be recognized for something in your life. Or it seems like as we try to add this glory to our lives, this weight to our lives, this significance, we're always trying to convince people that we shouldn't be thrown off the island. I'm worthy to be here. We try to seek this glory, something that gives us significance. And so Paul says, as we initiate this glory in our own lives, you know what he says? What comes along with it is conflict. And Paul says, you should not seek glory. What does he say you should seek? Humility. Christ-like humility. Can I ask you to do something? If you have something to write with, type it, tweet it. I don't care what you do with it. I want you to remember this. Humility is the soil that unity thrives in. Humility is the soil that unity thrives in. Why? Because humility inhibits rivalry and deceit. Humility inhibits these sort of petty arguments that we have, these disagreements that we have. Humility breaks down walls and barriers. Humility is the soil that unity thrives in. You know this if you have a green thumb. We've killed two palm trees in our home. (laughs) I know this. When there's bad soil, when the soil is not watered, you have to have the right soil for a tree, a plant, a bush to thrive. And humility is the right soil for the church. We can experience unity. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves, listen to what he says, with humility, all of us, toward one another. Why? Because this is a strong statement. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Paul's just talked about these preachers who have false motives back in verse 17, if you were here a couple weeks ago. Now he's looking at the entire church, and he's saying, avoid the same attitude. Listen, if you're involved in a church, and specifically our church, and I know there's Every Sunday we have people here who are here for the first time, maybe visiting from another church, maybe visiting from out of town. Listen, people in the church, teammates, should be aware of rivalry and envy. Listen to me, and put it to death. There cannot be joy in the life of a Christian. There cannot be joy in the life of a Christian who puts themselves above others. There just cannot be. So ask yourselves a couple diagnostic questions to see where you are. Am I competing for people's attention and approval? Is it hard or is it easy for me to have joy in other people's successes? Do I think I'm superior to people in my views, in my attitudes, in my character? Am I always concerned for others' needs? Do I always have to be right or have my point heard? There will never be unity in your life and my life, in the life of a church, unless we demonstrate humility. If you remember the last three weeks in this series, and if you're here for the first time this Sunday, we're glad you're here. I would encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. In Philippians chapter 1, what we saw was Christ first. Paul, 
hit this theme over and over and over. And if you remember last week, we said, how do you fill in the blank? Is Christ what you fill in the blank with? In Philippians chapter 1, we see Christ first. When we turn the page to Philippians chapter 2, we see others next. That's going to be the theme of Philippians chapter 2. And I want to say to us this morning, we cannot be effectively concerned about others if Christ is not our first concern. We cannot effectively be concerned about others if Christ is not our first concern. And that's on the screen. Conflict, and especially continual conflict, in your life, listen to me, is a symptom. Let's go back to chapter 1. Conflict and continual conflict. Are you continually in conflict? I believe this with all of my heart. We see it demonstrated in Philippians. Continual conflict in your life is a symptom in my life of a heart disconnected from Jesus. I believe this. People who are consistently connected to the heart of God don't live consistently in contention with others. People who are consistently connected to the heart of God don't live consistently in contention with others. I've seen this demonstrated in the life of my own pastor and I've watched him navigate times and seasons of life where people used him and abused him as a guy who's president of an entire denomination with a lot of influence around the country. There are often times when people used and abused him. At one point in time, years ago, there was a staff member who had such a sharp disagreement with my pastor. This was a public disagreement. It went to blogs, and a lot of people were talking about it. At one point, a staff member had such a sharp disagreement with my pastor. It was over this theological conviction that, by the way, godly men and women disagree on. It got to this point where he so disagreed that he began to slander my pastor's name. He wrote blog posts that were public. He wrote things publicly about him on social media. And I remember as the story was retold and I went back and watched the story unfold, I remember my pastor never entertained the conflict because he knew it would bring division. And he prayed for the man and he demonstrated kindness and gentleness towards him. And because of his kindness, this man who was slandering him, this staff member of his, eventually asked my pastor to meet to ask him for forgiveness. I want you to listen to the words of this man who slandered. My pastor, he wrote this publicly on a blog, so I have no problem saying it to you this morning. In 1999 to 2002, I had the privilege of serving on staff in the capacity of minister to young adults and discipleship. I resigned from my position due to theological agreements with my pastor because I felt like I was correct. I spent many years battling bitterness and resentment. I often said unkind things that were unwarranted. Pastor Johnny was always kind to my family and never retaliated or said unkind things publicly about me personally. Pastor Johnny forgave me when I went way overboard on him. We met face to face and communicate almost weekly. We have had two dinners together and the love that he has shown me has blown me away. Yes, we may disagree on some things, he said, theologically. But Pastor Johnny loves Christ, taught me more things lately about being a strong Christian and pastor than anyone of late. I know both of these men personally. I've worked with both of these men personally. And what I have observed is that when godly men and women 
who are connected to the heart of God, they don't live in contention with people. In this engagement, how it ended. By the way, my pastor went back after this guy left staff, and he went back, and they so reconciled. My pastor hired him once again. This represents two men seeking the heart of God who can now live in unity with one another. Listen, what I have found is that if I myself, if we live too long in the realm of contention and conflict, listen to me, if you live too long in the realm of contention and conflict, it seeps down into your soul. And if you live there too long, it could temporarily, listen to me, I don't mean you lose your salvation. It could temporarily sever your heart connection with God. If you live consistently in contention and conflict on social media, in, in politics, in blog posts, in text chains, in comment threads, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find yourself bitter, contentious, conflicted. A person who finds it difficult to live in harmony with anyone. And it's possible that the conflict you experience everywhere is not simply because it was there when you got there. It's probably there because you brought it with you when you came. I want to call us back this morning to a heart connection with God. How? By understanding and applying humility. Humble people are not people who think shamefully about themselves they simply think less about themselves the the truly humble person knows who he is it accepts who he is he submits himself to christ listen for christ's glory not his own and what we understand is that if we have this single mind focused on Jesus, as we found in Philippians chapter 1, we find it extraordinarily easy and have no problems with the humble mind that we see in Philippians chapter 2. So like-mindedness and humility are required for unity. And the last thing that Paul is going to say here, the last requirement for unity among believers, is thinking about others. This others-centeredness. Listen to how he says it. Not looking out to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Others is the key concept in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to go on in Philippians chapter 2 in the coming weeks to see specific examples from Jesus and Paul. What this specifically looks like. This doesn't mean when you look out for the interests of others that you're sort of this doorman, you're on call, any, any and all times. It doesn't mean that you're this doormat, that people use you. Unity is not giving in to everybody's whims and everybody's wishes. That's not what Paul is saying. But one of the implications of humility is that you consider the needs of others. Consider the needs of others. By the way, don't you think this is one of the reasons? Don't you think this may be one of the reasons why, why people abandon church? You listen to a message like this from Scripture... Paul asks us to, to humble ourselves, live in the lives of other people, and then the thought of expanding energy on behalf of somebody else is excruciating. That makes so much sense to me in the selfie culture that we live in. Thinking of others is extremely uncommon. But the practice of thinking of others flows from the attitude of humility that Paul just talked about in verse 3. Let me, let me close us out this morning 
Let me close this out with a quote from C.S. Lewis who wrote a book called Mere Christianity. He tries to describe what it would be like to meet a humble person. C.S. Lewis says to even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that. Of course, he is nobody. Probably, all you will think about him is that he seemed cheerful, an intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. And if you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Humility is this prerequisite for serving others. It's the byproduct both of serving others and humility. The byproduct is this unity. A humble person thinks of others. An arrogant, self-absorbed person only thinks of himself or herself. And this is a great message for me this morning, and I hope it is for you. Let me close with a quote from the great theologian John Stott. He said, at every stage of our Christian development, and in every sphere of Christian discipleship. Pride is the greatest enemy, and humility is our greatest friend. Therefore, church, this morning, for the good of our own souls, for the good of the unity of the church, for the good of those outside of the church watching, grow in humility. And in our humility, we can find joy in the midst of conflict. Let me pray for us. Jesus, this morning, we cannot help but think about the greatest example of humility. That is when you came from heaven, you took on flesh. You went to the cross and you died an undeserving death. Jesus, in doing so, you demonstrated what it was like to humble ourselves. God, may we be a church known by one another, known to those outside as being a church that's unified, not living in contention and conflict continually. God, surrendering ourselves, surrendering ourselves to the single mind focused on Jesus that will lead us inevitably to the humble mind focused on others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.